Hello, everyone, and welcome to Where Work Meets Life. I'm really excited about this episode on money and well-being, how the pink tax harms us all. I'm with Janine Rogan, and I was introduced to Janine Rogan through one of her fans who said, you must talk to this woman. She's local in your same city, which is always a treat, and she's doing a lot of really important work about building up financial equity, and she wrote this new book called The Pink Tax, and I was super excited to learn more about her. I'm going to tell you that Janine Rogan, CPA, is a passionate keynote and TEDx speaker and is founder and CEO of the Wealth Building Academy, Inc., She's spoken all over the world, and she's on a mission to help and empower women to confidently and profitably grow their wealth through financial feminism and financial equity for all. And we know that financial equity for all helps the world be a better place. Janine has uh, debuted her book, The Pink Tax, this past May, and we'll talk about this book. It has an awesome cover and it's so full you know of great wisdom and with some humor and really creative and I understand she wrote this book uh, while on her maternity leave with her son Theodore so she has a son Theodore a husband Andrew lives in Calgary and welcome to the show Janine thank you for having me I'm so excited for our conversation today me too so tell us Janine why you do what you do Yeah, well, I guess if we go back to like when I was at my university days, what I was finding as I was doing my accounting degree, and then when I went on to do my CPA designation, was that I was learning how to manage the money and the finances and file tax returns and audit some of the biggest companies in Canada, but no one was teaching us how to manage our own money. And that was something that kind of really stuck out to me because I would be talking to my colleagues and I would find that there was a financial literacy gap, you know, from again, all of these CPAs. So I figured if, if we're dealing with this as CPAs, then I feel like, of course, more people in the general public are also dealing with this. So that really is where my financial literacy journey started. And then within the past probably half decade or so, I really started to look into the impact that our society has on women's money. Um, I was finding that many of the reasons women are told that they don't have money was around like too many lattes or um, avocado toast is why we can't have a house or um, you just bought an expensive pair of shoes. And I just knew that that couldn't be why women held less wealth uh, than men worldwide. So it really drove me into this research process to understand what was actually impacting women's bank accounts and what we actually needed to do about that. And that's kind of where the book was was born out of. I wanted it to be a mix of, of course, some personal finance tips and tricks, but also understanding the system that impacts us. Beautiful. So would you say it was a labor of love getting this book done? Yeah, I always say it's my second baby. Um, and this that one took two and a half years to grow. The first one only took nine months. So <laughs> two and a half years. Good for you. And great job. I know that that's no small feat from having written myself. Yes, thank you. It was, there were some long days for sure. So what impacts do you hope that the pink tax has uh, on the world? 
You know, when I started writing it, um, I wasn't obviously sure what we were going to call it. What I really wanted people to understand is that um, sometimes it's not just about that you didn't save enough money or that you aren't cutting expenses enough or that you aren't earning enough. I think sometimes we also have to understand the impacts that the systems we've set up have on, on people and make it more challenging for certain groups of people. And then with that knowledge and information, understanding that it might take you maybe a little bit longer to get to a certain point in your life, or it, your journey might look a little bit different than the, the traditional way of doing things, and that's okay. And then ultimately, you know, taking action, whether that's in your own personal finances, or if you're advocating in your community for um, different policies um, that will make the world more fair and more equitable. Right. And that is a great vision and mission for the book. Are you finding that you're hearing back from people who are making a difference with the pink tax learnings? Yeah. Um, I had a young woman reach out to me actually a couple of weeks ago saying, sending me a list of all the things that she actually did to, uh, to change her situation. And, and that was so amazing to hear. Um, I think, you know, we're with this book, I'm really trying to shed light on an area that I don't think traditionally has really been talked about. I would agree. And I would say there's some shame associated with it, almost feeling ashamed that you don't understand the concepts. Um, to me personally, I've found that with the, all the acronyms in finances, it took me a long time to get around it in my business, which is 14 years old now. But in my personal finances, you know, I find that some of those terms are still, you know, difficult to fully understand and grasp. So I'm so glad that you published this. Yeah, no, and I, I, I totally agree with you. Um, the financial industry was set up to, I don't want to say to make things confusing, but all the acronyms are overwhelming and are absolutely um, confusing and challenging to overcome. And, you know, this is not something that we're taught in school. Um, as I said, as a CPA, I was finding there was people in my network that I was working with that also did not know these things. So I think you know, around that shame piece, I think it's the first step is saying like, okay, it's okay to have a beginner's mindset with this. And I'm just going to take it one thing or one step at a time. And it's okay to ask questions and finding those, you know, safe places to be able to do so without any fear of judgment or shame. Totally. And I understand you've created modules as well around educating uh, women on, on wealth. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, my company, the Wealth Building Academy, also has um, an online investing course. And this course walks you through, it's, it's an investing course geared towards women. So it walks you through everything from what is a stock, what is a bond, what is the TFSA, all of those acronyms and words, and then all the way through to how to actually build an investment portfolio um, that is going to help you grow your wealth uh, in the long term and you know ultimately be able to reach financial independence or retire um, and live a life that you actually enjoy living. Perfect. We will share that in the show notes, in the blog, uh, etc. So that is wonderful, Janine. So I know the book was created around the, the wealth gap and knowledge gap of, of women, but how does it apply to other diverse groups in terms of this wage and wealth disparity? Yeah, we know that 
anytime we add any level of intersectionality, that gap just widens. So women, white women earn 84 cents on the dollar. Women of color earn 62 cents on the dollar. White women have 30% of the worldwide wealth. Women of color have just 2%. So we know that with that data, any level of intersectionality we add, it just gets worse. So then um, unfortunately in some areas, there is not a lot of data. So uh, when we look at the LGBTQ2S plus community, we don't have a ton of data on the wage and wealth gaps between those demographics because that you know, was just information that wasn't really captured in the past. So a good reminder to us all that we need to be looking at our data from an intersectional lens and, and understanding the impact that that has on the world. But yeah, as soon as you add in a second layer of minority groups, it just, it widens. And so that's also something we need to address. Wonderful. And, and I appreciate that uh, you've taken it those next steps um, and, and looking more broadly over time at those other gaps, I think will be super important. But uh, I want to understand, so how people can get a copy of this book? What's the best way to order it? Yeah, my website, pinktaxbook.com is where you can find all the links to wherever you want to purchase a book from, whether you're in Canada or the US. Um, if you like Amazon, if you don't like Amazon, there's lots of options there. So if you head over to that website, you'll be, uh, you'll have all the options available to you. Perfect. And we will share that as well. So I know in the book, there are the, you know, four distinct areas described, but can you tell us about maybe some key takeaways that people can implement immediately? What have been the most uh, ready to uh, understand and apply learnings? I think there are two key areas that I, I really want women to take away when it comes to their own personal finances. And that is number one, negotiation. I think women under negotiate. Um, we know that every $5,000 that you negotiate in your early career years and your early salaries can translate to over $750,000 in wages over the course of your career. So we know negotiating is important and it doesn't always have to just be negotiating salary. It can be negotiating time off. It can be negotiating work from home. Um, you have the ability to negotiate lots of things when it comes to your job, but you also have the ability to negotiate outside of your job. So even things like your phone bill, getting more data, um, negotiating an upgrade on a flight or at a hotel, these are all really great ways that you can practice negotiating and practice that muscle so that when you do have a bigger negotiation for salary, um, it doesn't feel as scary. So I would say like that is the first thing I definitely think women can start practicing and can start implementing. And the second is investing. So if you are not already investing, you absolutely need to be. Um, the difference between someone who is tries to save enough money to retire and someone who saves money and then invests it is multiple millions of dollars over the course of a lifetime. And we know, especially for younger generations, that things like pensions from employers aren't necessarily going to be a given. So a lot of our retirement is actually going to be on us. And 
the only way we can start to close the wealth gap is by investing. And that it really just shows the power of a um, dollar today versus a dollar that is invested and grows, you know, 10% per year, which is on average what the stock market returns. So again, really, really important to start investing. Even you can do it with like as little as 25 or $100. You can absolutely get started investing with that small sum of money. And I think because it can be really overwhelming, people don't always necessarily know where to start. And I think the most important thing is actually taking that first step and starting to educate yourself on how to get started investing. And would you agree with me, there's a lot of financial planners out there, and a lot of them are hungry for work. So they'll, you know, push for business. And it's hard to separate the financial planner that really knows what they're doing from the one that might not be as trustworthy. And I know earlier in my career, I dealt with that. So I imagine others are dealing with that, Janine. Yeah, um, and nothing against CFPs, but um, I always say, and I, I talk about this in the book, the number one thing you need to understand when working with someone is how they're compensated. So whether it's a CFP, whether it's a realtor, you understand how they're compensated, you understand their bias. So I always use a realtor as an example. Um, your realtor is incentivized actually to sell you a house at a higher price because they get more commission. Um, and that's not to say don't use a realtor, that's just to say, if you understand that bias, then you might make different decisions. So you might encourage your realtor to push a little bit harder to get the price lower, or you may not take their advice when they say like, I think that this is the, the price you should offer. You might actually decide you want it to be lower. Um, so really understanding how people are compensated. And sometimes with um, CFPs or people that work at banks, they're actually selling you, if especially if you don't get charged a fee to, to meet with them, they are selling you investments where they get a piece of that specific investment as a return. And that can really eat into your ability to build long-term wealth because they may be incentivized to sell you an investment that either maybe isn't in line with what um, you need in your life or has higher fees than you might actually be able to find somewhere on the market if you're doing it yourself. So again, not to say you can't use these professionals, um, but if we understand how they're compensated, we can understand their bias. That's just so wonderful and so true. And I loved what you said a couple of minutes ago about negotiating. So the firm that I run, Canada Career Counseling, oftentimes there is this, you know, need to help our clients negotiate, you know, salary, benefits, etc. And a lot of people lack that confidence in how to do so. So I'm super glad that you are addressing this as well, Janine. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a muscle you have to practice. Um, and actually, one of my good friends, she's Canadian as well. She wrote the book, Say Less, Get More. Um, her name is Fotini, and she is an awesome negotiator. It's all it's an entire book on negotiation. I just have one small chapter in mind. So if you're looking for even more advice, I would say that uh, her book is a great resource as well. We will put that in the show notes as well. And I'd like to get my hands on that one. As you can see from behind me, I have a lot of books, <laughs> but I'm a book addict. Yeah, your house looks like mine. I, I love books. I do too. And I, you know, we hear that people are reading fewer books. And I find that really sad um, that people are reading less because it's such an important way to, to learn and grow. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm very committed to, you know, continuous learning. And whether that's by reading books or listening to podcasts, I think that there's little things that all of us can do. 
Yes, 100%. So back to the four distinct areas in your book. What are the four distinct areas where people can take action? So there's four foundations of financial feminism, and and we can look at, at some of those. But I think there's actually three really personas that people kind of take on where they can impact change. And the first, you know, is really around that individual level. So making sure your finances are in order, making sure that you're investing, negotiating, make sure you're properly insured. All of those things are things you can do to set yourself up financially. And that's awesome. That's great. That's going to help us move forward. The second area, though, is as an employee or as um, a a manager or someone in an organization. And I really believe that there is a role for all of us to play within our companies to advocate for more um, fair policies around different areas of people that have been maybe underserved or underrepresented. So things like maternity and paternity leave top up. Um, We've actually started to also see different health and drug plans for members of the LGBTQ2S plus community at some companies. And that is something that I think is also really important and great because everybody has different costs and different impacts to them. But if you're in a position where you can make some of that change, I think it's important that you advocate for it. Um, And then the third area is kind of as a global citizen, what can you do to ultimately, um, you know, further the agenda of equality? So I really... I talk about it in the introduction of my book. Like I do think talking about politics is really important. Um, And I do think money impacts politics. Um, Not I do think, I do know that money impacts politics. Um, And I think how we vote and who we vote for and the policies we vote for are really important. I'm not going to tell anybody which way to vote, but critically looking at the policies they support, looking at the members of their team, looking how they treat women in the media, in the press, I think all really speaks to the types of people that we're advocating for and that get to make change in our world. Wonderful. So really self, right, level management or leaders of an organization level and societal impacts. All three levels need to continue to evolve. Yes, absolutely. I totally get that. And yes, we have we have a ways to go. But yeah, thank you for helping to lead and influence and inspire us to do do these things. So I always like to look at the link between, you know, whatever we're talking about and well-being or, or wellness. So how does our current financial system impact people's well-being? What are you seeing with your research? Yeah, well, right now it's a very stressful time for people. Um, Obviously we know there's a cost of living crisis. Um, I've been reading the news a ton around uh, rentals across Canada and, and mortgages and just how challenging it is for people to actually get a place to live. So I always tend to go back to kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and, and think about like, if people are struggling to find a place to live, like how are they ever going to get to the point where they're even able to negotiate their salary? That's kind of, you know, higher up the, that Maslow's hierarchy that I think everybody learns in psych 101 or whatever it is. There's that nice little triangle. Um, But so I think when we look at how in Canada, um, 
the cost of everything is impacting people, I think it, it does cause a ton of financial stress. And we know that obviously stress impacts well-being. Um, and so, you know, one of the areas that I talk about in the book is, is building wealth is actually a form of self-care because having that wealth, having that money in your bank account to fall back on should things, you know, take a turn for the worst, someone loses their job, someone ends up sick, um, you have that cushion to fall back on and you know that you're going to be okay. Um, that being said, as a, a country, I, I do think that we need to change how we're doing things in terms of housing. Um, that could be a whole other podcast episode, um, but we won't get into all of that today. And I would say that the other piece that really impacts people is debt. Um, and, and I'm talking more around high interest debt. I think it can be extremely overwhelming for people and it can be really challenging for them to know kind of what to do if they're living paycheck to paycheck or a ton of their money is going towards debt that really weighs on your mental health and well-being and can cause a lot of stress and anxiety and even in some cases depression around having that shame and, and having so much debt. So I think there is definitely a huge link there around money and well-being. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I agree with you. We have a massive problem going on. And when you layer on constant stress and then you can layer on some behaviors to manage that stress that are unhealthy. So bring in addiction or overspending, shopping addiction, whatever it may be, then you you really have problems, right? It's a vicious cycle. Absolutely. And we know that like impulse spending, for example, releases that dopamine hit, um, that that swipe of the credit card that, you know, I've, I've purchased this new thing, but we know that it's temporary. And then when you kind of come down off that hit of dopamine, you can really start to have some negative feelings around um, spending and feeling overwhelmed and not sure, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have bought that and really feeling guilty. And again, like you said, it's a vicious cycle, then that gets you into maybe um, using a substance or, or spending more. Um, and I think there is a lot of linkages around mental health and money. Um, I actually took, I'm um, just finishing up a course called The Trauma of Money, and it's actually put on by a woman out in Vancouver. And it, it's really interesting to understand just how much, um, even going back to our childhood, how much those choices our parents made impact our relationship with our money and how those choices then impact our mental health and well-being. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like your father, just from reading in your book, he was a you know, educator on finances for you from an early age, right? Yes, the, the story at the beginning of the, of the lemonade stand. Um, yeah, both my parents are, are accountants. Um, uh, we just tend to have a ton of them in the family. I feel bad for my sister because she's the only doctor. But uh, there's lots of us that talk about money from, um, I think, a spending and a savings side in my family. But I, I never really got the investing uh, knowledge from my parents. And so again, I think that speaks to back what I saw at the firms is even CPAs are finding that they don't necessarily know everything about money. And, and that's okay. Um, we're all still learning. But um, I always try to remind people like if, if this group of like money professionals still doesn't know things, it's it's totally okay for you to not know those things as well. Totally. And it's, I see financial literacy as financial health, right? It's mental health, financial health, right? Those are both very important. And I think there's a fair bit to be done for a lot of our financial health. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I would love to see more companies actually offer that as a benefit and bring people in to educate their workforce. We've actually seen a lot of research around, um, not that productivity is the be all and end all, but companies do tend to care about it. Um, people who are in a financially precarious situation are actually quite a bit less productive at work because they're constant is constantly on their mind. They're constantly stressed about it. I think we can all think of a time when something was stressing us out and you're like, okay, just like, don't think about it. And that obviously doesn't work. Um, but if we're seeing that, you know, lower productivity in the workforce because people are stressed about money, I would love, since we don't get this education in high school or in university, for employers to take that on to educate their workforce and, and give them the tools so that they can address these money challenges. Well put. I couldn't agree more. Moving on to your own work-life wellness. I always like to ask my guests this question. How, what does work-life wellness look like for you, Janine? And how do you balance being a speaker, a writer, a podcaster, a business owner, a mother, and a wife? <laughs> Some days I don't know. <laughs> um, honestly, I think, um, you know, it. you got to take each day as it comes. And I think I've learned this early on in my career. I had a partner tell me, I think I was like a co-op student, but like there is no such thing as an accounting emergency. And I've really applied that to kind of all aspects of my life, especially watching my sister go through, um, she's an ER doctor, watching her go through her training. Um, I'm not saving lives. So if I need to take a day or take a half day to, uh, if I'm not feeling well, or if I need to go pick up my son um, or what, whatever it is for our family, things can get pushed and it literally nobody is going to die. So I think, you know, that is something I've always kept in the back of my mind. I do really try to um, take weekends off. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and I'm pretty controlling of the time I have with my son in terms of I don't let um, work really creep in from about 4.30 when I pick him up to when he goes to bed at seven. And that's kind of like non-negotiable time that I spend with him. Um, so I think it really comes down to setting boundaries. Um, sometimes we follow those boundaries, sometimes we don't. But uh, having them in place does really help kind of put guardrails on how much you actually work because as a business owner, there is always something to do. There is always more work to be done and, and more things to accomplish. Um, so really trying to trying to have some of that balance as well. Isn't that the truth? So I know your time is limited, obviously, in life, but what do you read or listen to? Can you give us a recommendation for a book or podcast that has really inspired you? I read a ton of nonfiction. I'm not really a fiction reader. Um, the most recent nonfiction book I read was called Cultish. So I, I don't know. I've always had a fasc fascination around cults. I think they're very interesting. I'm like from a distance. I don't want to be a part of one. Um, but that was a really good read. Um, she's also the author of the book is called Word Slut. And it really talks about the like a, how our language impacts um, equality. So she, I've kind of been going through some of her work this summer, which has been really interesting. Um, in terms of podcasts, um, I, I tend to listen to kind of other business owners and what they've been able to build. So kind of like that next level ahead of me, like how can I learn from them to accomplish kind of the same levels of success? So people like Jenna Kutcher, Amy Porterfield are two really amazing women business owners that have done great things. Um, and then 
yeah, I, I guess I try to fit in a little bit of uh, fiction here and there, but sometimes it doesn't really work. Awesome. We will share all of those. And you have a podcast as well still, do you? We're, we're on a little bit of a hiatus um, as my co-host was uh, finishing up her master's and then I decided to start my master's. So we, we may be bringing it back, but there are still lots of great episodes that I think are still relevant today um, at the pinktaxpodcast.com. Beautiful. I imagine a lot of that is evergreen content. So we will share that as well. Awesome. Um, so my final question today is if you could have one wish for a better world when it comes to financial equity, what would it be? I only get one. Oh, okay. You can have two. I can have two. <laughs> um, I would say uh, as a mom and watching a lot of my friends become mothers, having appropriate compensation for maternity leave, um, here in Canada, obviously, we have a lot more ability to take maternity leave, but I don't love that your income is drastically slashed at a time when it's like the most expensive and most stressful time of your life. You have this new baby that you're not really sure how to take care of, and you're making a lot less money, and we really haven't seen the increases in those um, since the 50s. Um in terms of like kind of that top end. So I would love to see that. And and with that, I that means I would love to see men taking leave as well, because I think that really does help make it more equal in the corporate world if you have both um, parents equally as likely to take leave. And then I would probably say like a universal basic income. I don't think that your ability to put food on the table or a roof over your head should be tied to employment. So um, I have lots of views on how we can maybe change our society, but I think we've seen enough advances in our society and we have amazing technology available to us. I don't think anybody should um, not be able to eat or not be able to have a warm place to sleep or put clothes on their back. Um, and that be tied to employment. I think that that should be a basic right for absolutely everyone. Well put. Thank you for all you had to share today. This has been a great conversation. I've definitely learned from you. And I think a lot of people will, a lot of women will learn, but everybody can benefit from this because, you know, if we don't have uh, equity in, in our, our wealth, we have a bigger problem. It's not just a women's problem. Agreed. Yeah, there's there's something for everyone to do. And, you know, just quickly going back to the, the the fathers taking paternity leave, we know that that helps men's mental health. And we know men struggle the most with rates of suicide. So even being more involved in, in the family life and not just having your entire identity as a man being tied to your work um, is really important. Because if you were to lose that job, we've seen this happen to a lot of men, um, things can really go downhill for them. So, you know, Equity for all means that it, it is also helpful and impactful for men in the world as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Janine. I look forward to sharing all of this. And I hope you and your little Theodore stay well. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Where Work Meets Life. If you found this content valuable, please rate and review the episode and share with others who may benefit. Visit me on my website at drlaura.live and sign up for my monthly e-newsletter full of tips and resources. 
I'm also a passionate keynote speaker and would be delighted to speak with you on your speaking needs. Stay well.